You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Ephesians 5, verse 32 says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you were to just take that verse alone, you obviously have to ask the question, well, what's the mystery? What is Paul making reference to? Okay, now, first of all, let me say this. Raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hand if you're married, okay? Okay, there you go. This, I was not thinking about you specifically when I prepared this sermon, okay? Just need to tell you, like, for all the people that are married, that's the majority of this room, I was not thinking about you. I wasn't thinking about, like, let's teach a marriage sermon so Carly could hear what I really think, you know? Or, like, you know, let's, let's, let's remind Tristan and Kayla what it means to be married. They've only been married a couple years, right? Like, that wasn't my purpose. So as you're listening to this, do not feel like I am pointing at you and targeting you. You can go to God and complain about it if you want, because he's probably pointing you and targeting you when you hear the word. But listen to what the mystery is that Paul's talking about, okay? Pop up to verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I look forward to your phone calls and emails. <laughs> verse 23 says... For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And this is where Paul then says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, mystery is something that intrigues us as humans. Um, I, it, when I was at Portland State, uh, I, I came back after several years to finish up my undergraduate degree. So I was literally looking through the catalog and uh, looking for classes that I thought were easy to take so that I could just get through as many credits as possible. But I also looked for other classes that were easy to take. And so I signed up for a film class. And the whole term was every week you showed up and you watched a movie. But then, I mean, you had to write a paper, a little, like, you know, three-page summary or whatever. But one of the sections, several weeks in a row, we watched Alfred Hitchcock movies, right? So Rear Window, uh, what was the other one? Um, the Birds, right? Tippy Hedren, right? Like, just freaky stuff. Uh, James Stewart was in a lot of those. Just, but, but 
mystery, right? Trying to figure out what's going on. We have a history of loving mysteries like murder mystery movies, those things, Hitchcock. Even on television, back when I was growing up, Robert Stack and Unsolved Mysteries, right? Like that's still going on, I think, in some form or another to where we watch television shows where there's this mysterious thing and typically it's like a murder mystery or something like that. And they're trying to figure out what's going on, right? Looking for clues. And even now in the age of podcasts, small town detectives, unsolved crimes, those are high up on the list of highly listened to podcasts. People love this idea of we don't know something, but perhaps we could figure it out, right? The same thing is true within Christianity. In fact, from the very first generation after Christ, when he ascended and he gave to his disciples the charge of leading the church and spreading the gospel, from the very beginning of the church, there was a heresy, meaning a false teaching, known as Gnosticism that arose. And Gnosticism, if you get down to the root of what it means, it just means secret knowledge, and so people who were Gnostics were saying, well, you, you Jewish Christ, Jews who became Christians, you Christians who are converted from pagan religions, you believe in this Jesus, but that's not the full story, right? And they would claim to have this special knowledge that to us perhaps was a mystery, right? And so Gnosticism was all about this, this secret knowledge, this mystery that only a few knew the answer to that everybody else needed to be enlightened to now. At the root of Gnosticism and why it was a heresy was the the teaching that Jesus was just a man, not deity, that he wasn't God, but that he had had a piece of God, some form of divinity planted into him so that he could do what he did in terms of miracles, etc. And the Gnostic teaching was that you and I are the same that we could get this little piece of divinity within us so that we could be perfect and never sin and do amazing things. That heresy has taken form in multiple ways throughout the history of the church, whether it was the Manichaeists or the Donatists. The modern-day version of this that you and I would probably be most familiar with is Mormonism. Mormonism is a form of Gnosticism, that says, no, it's not just what you read in the, the, the New Testament. There's additional information that Joseph Smith got that you and I need to know so that we can actually become gods ourselves. That's Gnosticism, but it's rooted in this weird thing in our DNA as humans that we love the idea of mystery. Dan Brown's novel, uh, The Da Vinci Code, right? Da Vinci Code came out in the early 2000s, and there were people who weren't very well educated in what Christianity was or the history of Christianity who read this fiction novel and went, oh, he figured it out. Jesus and Mary Magdalene actually got married and had kids, and so the lineage of Jesus exists in the world today. And it's like, whoa, wait a, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. That denies everything we know about Scripture and 2,000 years of church history, but people were listening to Dan Brown and going, oh, That's the secret information we needed to know. That's why it was a bestseller, and there's like movies made about it, right? And and so not only that, but it's the thing that we see so many people get caught up in, in church now, but also in the history of the church, that there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. It can't just be go to church and read your Bible and do what God says in the Word there's got to be something more. Give me something exciting. Give me something exciting or mysterious. Give me something spiritual in nature that I can't really explain, 
but it's really cool, right? And we see people getting sidetracked by that stuff all the time rather than just saying what God has given us is in his word. If we follow these things, that's where we're going to find our fulfillment, not some mysterious thing that we need to figure out. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, says this, the secret of mystery is this, God is always greater. It's not the mystery of can I speak in tongues or not. It's not the mystery of do I have the power to heal someone if I have enough faith or not. It's not the mystery of some secret ritual that if I do it, it's going to open me up to some form of spirituality that I've never experienced before. No, the secret of mystery is that God is always greater. Now, the Bible is full of mystery. In the Old Testament, anything that's referred to as a mystery typically is in a prophetic reference to the coming Messiah. Things that were a mystery to the Old Testament saints, things that they couldn't figure out, why God was asking us to do certain things, why we were celebrating certain feasts and rituals and those kinds of things. It was all pictures pointing toward Jesus. Those were the mysteries of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when mystery is talked about, it's always sacramental, which means it's in relationship to uniting us to Jesus. That's how mystery is used in the New Testament. You can take note of several places where mystery is used in the New Testament. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. If you're a note taker, write these down. These are fun to go look at later on. But Romans 16, 25 talks about the mystery of the ages, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves us, right? The good news of Jesus. That was a mystery for ages, but now it's been revealed to us, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 51. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. The mystery that at the end of the age, you and I are going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. We're going to be united with him. The Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, meaning quickly, yeah? We're going to be united to Jesus. We're going to be like him at his coming. We've even read here in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verse 6, the mystery again of the gospel is that it unites Jew and Gentile. No longer is God's salvation only for his select few people. It's for everyone who believes on Jesus. That was a mystery to, to those first century Christians to go, Gentiles, are, they can be saved too? That was a mystery, but it was revealed that Jesus is the Savior of all, not just a few. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 the mystery that how Gentiles get saved, those who are not of the original people of God, Gentiles, how they get saved, the mystery is that it's Christ in us, in you and me. He charged us to go out and be witnesses to his gospel, to his good news. It's that God uses us. That's a mystery, that God would use you or me for him to bring the message of salvation to anyone. That's a mystery, and yet that's how God has chosen to work. Finally, mark down 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. One of those 316 verses that you find throughout Scripture that are powerful. And Paul says this to young Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of the truth, meaning that here, the gathering of God's people, the church, 
This is where we see how, it, how life is supposed to be. This is the reflection of what God has given us, how we interact with one another. That is the example to the world of God's salvation. And here's what it says, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, Paul says, is the mystery of godliness, that he, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The mystery of godliness is the entirety of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the mystery of godliness, that you and I are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Godliness isn't about rituals. Godliness is most certainly not about church attendance. Godliness is, are we becoming more and more like Jesus? That is the mystery. Now, you'll notice perhaps that every time in the New Testament that the word mystery is used, there's this reference to it was a mystery, but then something was revealed to us. It was shown to us. Go back to Ephesians 5, or perhaps you're still there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. Paul, speaking about marriage, the marriage between a husband and a wife, in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. The, the mystery, he says, is marriage. That's a mysterious thing. And anybody who's married can say amen to that. Yeah, it's sort of a mystery of how we make it work and how it lasts and all those good things that we can joke about but we know are true. But Paul doesn't leave it there as a mystery. In fact, the word mystery all throughout the New Testament, the word that's used for it is something that was covered previously but has now been revealed. So mystery to us in the faith is not something hidden that we have to figure out some secret code to. No, everything that was a mystery at one point to us as New Testament Christians, it's been revealed. It's been shown to us. And the answer is that every mystery that's been revealed always is pointing to how we're supposed to be unified to Jesus, how we're supposed to start looking like Jesus. So let's take a look again at... Chapter 5, verse 32. The mystery of marriage and why it's a sacrament of the church, meaning why it's a point of unification with Jesus. Go back up to verse 22. And we'll read this insidious, anger-inducing, argument-causing scripture. Verse 22, wives, this is how you guys read it in my mind. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. <laughs> For the husband is the head of the wife, and every man said amen. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself, it's Savior. Like literally, that's how I think you women are reading this, okay? As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Everything. I think I've said it before, but, but when I was growing up, like, I used to read, for some reason, I, I would read scripture in an angry voice. Like, I heard the voice of God as sort of angry, like him barking at me or shouting at me. Um, but, but truly, I, I think when we, when we see what scripture says, the points of scripture that are challenging or hard for us, I, I've said this before, remember, don't create a theology or a doctrine of some kind out of one verse or one, one little section of scripture. Read what's before Read what's after. Put it in the larger context of God's story of redemption. Understand what is trying to be communicated. 
So let's, let's pop up a couple of verses, right? And let's go and read what it was that Paul was saying to the entirety of the church. Look at verse 15, same chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Take note of that. The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark verse 21, underline it, highlight it, circle it. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If anybody wants to take verses 22 through 24 and start there and try and build a teaching or a doctrine or tell their wife that this is what's required of them, they have to pop up to verse 21 and start there. That's the answer. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, then we jump into this explanation that perhaps is quite mysterious. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know that verse in Colossians that says that we're supposed to work heartily, not for men to see us and give us praise, but that when we go do our job, we're supposed to work as unto the Lord. That it's God who's watching us and we're seeking his approval so that when, I'm, when I go and I teach class, right, Monday through Friday, I'm not doing it so that my vice principal or somebody else looks at me and says, you're teacher of the year, good job, those kinds of things. No, 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 no. I'm going and I'm dealing with kids and I'm trying to teach and try and intervene with kids and, and make a difference because I'm serving God. That has to be my mentality. I'll be honest, that's not always my mentality. I have to remind myself of that multiple times during the day. God is watching you. Don't say that. Okay? Actually care about these kids, you know, that kind of thing. But the truth is, is that this is the same type of thing. Ladies, when it says that you're to submit to your husbands, we have to add those words, as to the Lord. Boy, that's, that's pretty mysterious. That's pretty tough because my husband is not God. He does not look, act, smell, or sound like God. Okay? And then it continues and says, here's why. Here's why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The idea of submission here is not, and mark this, it's not subjugation. It's not the husband pushing the wife down. You have to understand that. Submission is the wife willingly coming underneath the covering or the headship of her husband and saying, in the same way that Jesus leads us as his church, you husband have the responsibility to lead me as your wife. It's your job to go out front. It's your job to go into battle first. It's your job that when all the issues and problems and pressures of this life come raining down upon our marriage, my job is to hide underneath you and you're built to take the blows. I love the imagery that my pastor used when we were, when we were young. He says, men are like, like root beer mugs. You guys are the big, thick glass things that you could slide down a bar and crash into things and it'd still be okay. And women are like those fine champagne flutes, right, that you gotta be real delicate with that they could crack and, and be broken very easily. And then all the feminists in the room go, how dare you say that we women are weaker, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Listen, we're just trying to submit to what God has said. This is the order that he's created things for, 
right? It doesn't mean that women aren't strong or valuable or knowledgeable or any of those things. In fact, it's quite the obvious. Do you not recognize this? I mean, most men should be able to say amen to this. Our wives are smarter than us, right? Because our goal in life is to marry up, right? We're not looking around going, who's dumber than me so I can see if I can figure out who I can fool into marrying me. No, we're working our tails off going, she's the one. Like, she's way up there. We're way down here. We're just trying to figure out how to get her attention, right? We're trying to marry up. That's the whole idea. And so as a result of that, we should be looking at our wives as valuable, smarter than us, more spiritual than us, more disciplined than us, better than us in every way. And so how is it that God says that we're the ones that are supposed to be in charge? Wouldn't it make more sense to go, God, let the women run things. It'll just be more organized. Things will be more on time. It'll be cleaner. Like, doesn't that make sense? And yet God calls us as men. Why? Because without that commandment, if we got a pass on that responsibility, we'd take it. <laughs> we'd just go, yeah, let the, yeah, look at everything's organized and all pastels and everything smells good. Like, everything works, right? And yet God tells us, men, it's your responsibility. You have to stand in the gap there. You're the ones that are called to lead. And in fact, you have the example of how to do it. Jesus is the example. Look at what Paul continues on to say in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25 is a key in, in this entire mystery of the relationship. My wife won't submit to me. She won't do what I say. She's not following the things that I want her to do and, and she, won't, she won't give in to what my demands are. Well, numbskull, are you loving her the way that Jesus loved the church? Well, I, I provide for her. I bring money home and there's food on the table and there's a roof over her. No, no, no. Listen, are you loving her the way that Christ loved the church, which is very specific as Christ loved the church? And here's the key, gave himself up for her. Well, but I have a five-year plan, and my corporate goals are this and that, and I want to live in this manner, and I want this to happen in my relationship. No, 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 listen. Are you giving up yourself the way that Jesus gave himself up? Right? That's, that's the key to this mystery. When Paul says that marriage is a mystery, but he's speaking of Christ and the church, there's the model. Right? Jesus gives himself fully for you and me. He doesn't hold anything back. He gave his entire life, everything that was his, his perfection, his holiness, his sinlessness, his communication with the Father, his right to inheritance of God's kingdom. He takes it all and just lays it down in front of us and goes, it's yours now. I, I'm giving up. I'm giving my life. And so everything that was mine is now yours. Husbands, you having an issue with submission in your household? Have you given up everything? Yeah, but it's my weekend to go fishing. Yeah, but no hunting every season. I've been putting in for this tag for 15 years, and if I don't get to go, it's not that big of a mystery why there's contention in your house. It's not that big of a mystery why things aren't working out in the relationship. It comes back to us as men to say, are you laying down your life? Are you giving up everything for your wife? Let's continue on. Here's the reason why. This mystery is no longer a mystery. Here's why it works. As Paul explains that it's about Jesus and the church, this marriage between husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's why. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he, she might be holy and, and without, blameless, without blemish. Pardon me. Jesus, in giving his life for us, Jesus being the word of God, giving himself to us, the word made flesh, Scripture says that he cleanses us. Jesus cleanses us by his word, what he speaks to us and about us. He cleanses us and he presents to himself a bride that is spotless, without blemish, no wrinkle, no nothing. Husbands, do you want to love your wives the way that you loved her the very first time you saw her? Do you want to find her attractive? Wash her with the water of the word. Do what God calls you to do as a husband. Wash your wife with the water of the word. And all of a sudden, this mysterious thing happens. She's attractive to you again. She takes on an image that you're like, boy, I, I didn't recognize how much she does for me. I didn't recognize how hard it is to submit to me. And yet she does it. And she does it in a way that phew, makes me just love her even more. We've been through this, I don't know how many times with couples. This is the place where I go to when, I, when we do premarital counseling with people who are about to be married. And this is advice I give young married couples. This is also advice I give old married couples who come to us and need counseling. And it's this, husbands, if, if you're finding conflict within your household, if you're finding trouble between you and your spouse, just go through this practice and just give it time. And it doesn't mean that there's not gonna need to be more counseling or discussion about issues and those kinds of things, but just start here. Begin reading the word to your wife. Literally, just whether it's at night before bed or you spend 10 minutes before you go to work, open up the scriptures, read the word to your wife. Wash her with the water of the word. Do it with sincerity and with hope. And then take a moment and just pray for one another. Whether you just pray the, the Lord's prayer, our Father which art in heaven, just pray for each other. You start there. Lay that foundation then you see what happens in the relationship. You just watch. If you submit yourself to the Lord in those things, and then you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ in those ways, I guarantee you, you just watch what happens, the foundation that's laid in your relationship. doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. doesn't mean everything's going to get fixed overnight. But when you lay that foundation, all of a sudden, there's this goal in mind. All of a sudden, there's this image of like, oh, that's what we're supposed to look like. And then he, Paul continues and gives plenty of evidence. In verse 28, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Remember, when you get married, you're not two anymore. You're one. Okay? You're one flesh. There is no more you and me. We meet in the middle and shake hands. We come up with some sort of legal arrangement or agreement. No, it's, we're just one. We're one entity. We're one unit now. And, and that's just, that's it. And so because we're one, what I do to you affects me. And what I don't do to you affects me. And if I want to be healthy, if I want to be whole, and, and if I want to experience the fullness of the joy of life that God has intended for me, I'm going to make sure that you're experiencing the fullness of the joy that God's intended for you because we're one. It's a reciprocal relationship. They go together. You can't tear them apart. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's no way to be a part of the church and not be unified to Christ. 
this, this, is, where, this is one of those things where, where it, it can border on judgment of other people and their salvation, and, and that's not the intention. But for us to be convicted for ourselves, we have to hear this, that there's no way for us to be a part of the body of Christ if we're not united with Christ if we have not believed upon him for salvation and taken his life for ours, right? You cannot be a part of the body of Christ simply because you said, I attended church. And there's far too many people in the world who think, I attended church. We just had a conversation with a, with, with a friend this week where, where uh, they have a, a young man in their life that is a part of their sort of family relationships right now. And the comment was, we need to get that boy to church, Right? And I get the intent. Don't mishear me. Like, I get the intent. They're thinking we get them to church because that's where the good influence is and all those kinds of things. I said, the issue is not with getting your young man to church. It's that your young man needs to know who Jesus is. Yeah, he needs to know who Jesus is and that, that he needs to be forgiven of his sins, that Jesus died for his sins. Can you hear that at church? Should you hear that at church? Yeah. Is being at church a good thing? Yes. But by coming to church, it doesn't mean that you're a part of God's kingdom. It doesn't mean that somehow you're safe. You have to be united you have to be one with Christ in the same way, same way that when a husband and wife are married, they're united in one flesh. Now, here's the big rub on this. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What if I disagree with the biblical structure of marriage? What if I, I think it's antiquated? What if I think that language is old-fashioned? What if, what if culture was different back then? What if women didn't have the freedoms that they have today and didn't have the ability to go get a job and make their own money and have their own life, right? What if I don't want to submit to the guy that I'm married to? What if I think that's wrong? What if I'm angry at what God said because I'm in a quote-unquote bad marriage, or how about this one? What if I'm not satisfied in my marriage? What if I'm looking at someone else's life or someone else's marriage or someone in general and think that I'll be more satisfied with them? Relate this to the church. What happens if you come to a point in your faith and you ask the question, what if I'm not satisfied with Jesus? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Gnosticism comes into play. There's something else out there. There's some additional information I need to actually be fulfilled and be happy, right? Here's what I need you to hear. Marriage isn't always fun. Marriage isn't always fun. Relationship with Jesus isn't always fun. In fact, it's one of the things that we're told in Scripture that as followers of Christ, we're going to suffer persecution, tribulation. We're going to go through suffering in our life. That's one of the things that we have to be honest about in our marriages as well. There's going to be seasons where it's really, really hard, where we may not agree on everything, where we may have different opinions or have different experiences or be angry or be hurt or be whatever. We're going to suffer. But I need you to hear this. Suffering becomes sacrifice when it's done for love. Suffering becomes sacrifice when it's done for love. Jesus, beaten, tortured, crucified, suffered. But that suffering was accepted by God as the most holy sacrifice 
because it was done for his love for you and for me. Scripture says that it was because of the joy that was set before him that Jesus Christ endured the shame of the cross. It's a shameful thing for someone to hang on a tree. That was the Jewish law. And yet Jesus says, I'm willing to go and give myself up fully as a sacrifice. The reality is true in our marriages as well. You may be suffering in the relationship. It may be hard right now. But if you endure that, if you go through that suffering and treat it like a sacrifice, and you do it for the reason of the love of your marriage, the love of your family, and quite honestly, for the love of God, you endure that. Then here's the other part that we have to see. Jesus sacrificed himself. He died. And then he rose again. Resurrection. He willingly gave himself up and then God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him up. What happens in a marriage when one or the other or both say, I'm gonna die to myself. I'm gonna give up my thing. Husband says, I'm gonna sacrifice my life just like Jesus for the wife. The wife says, I'm gonna submit, which is my sacrifice. (laughs) I'm gonna sacrifice my will. I'm gonna sacrifice my thing so that the other person is lifted up and that we're unified. What happens? Resurrection. That relationship that you think is dead or can't be healed, die. Give up. Submit. And watch that relationship resurrect. Watch it come back. Watch it be brought to life as it's washed with the water of the word. In every relationship, for it to be successful, for it to be fulfilling, for it to be fun, for it to be joyful, someone has to die. Now, before you go and plan something inappropriate, the reality is, is it's typically me. I have to die. I have to submit. I have to give up. And when both people are doing that, it's a funny thing. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that if you have anything in common, if you have any love in common, any, any common purpose in your life, then, then have this mind. It's yours. It was the mind of Christ, but now that Christ is in you, it's your mind as well. Do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit, right? Don't put yourself up first. Treat others better than yourself, Right? Well, this is the whole point of a relationship, that you treat the other person better than you treat yourself. And if both people are doing that, no, babe, whatever you want. I just want you to be happy. No, honey, just whatever you want. I want you to be happy. You may never be able to decide on what restaurant to eat at ever again, but you guys will be so immeasurably joyful and so ridiculously happy, it won't matter that you miss dinner, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ, Treat others better than yourself. Jesus shows us the example, his relationship to the church, about how all relationships are supposed to work. We die to self, we give up our thing, and then we watch God through the power of the Holy Spirit resurrect what was dead and give it new life. We have that very image before us today.